Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Dwayne Tenenbaum, author of the book Herbert H. Lehman, A Political Biography. Dwayne, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Okay, I'm Professor Emeritus of History at Lehman College, which is part of the City University of New York City. Uh, I taught at Lehman for 33 years after having taught briefly at Barnard, Vassar, and Ohio State University. My specialties are 20th century U.S. political history and American foreign relations. What was it that led you to write a biography of Herbert Lehman? Well, there's a quote I ran across many years ago. Uh, it was from a book review of a biography of Willie Sutton, the notorious bank robber. And this quote was, you think you choose the subjects of your books, but sometimes in ways you don't know, the books choose you. <laughs> and I really think that's what happened to me with this biography of Herbert Lehman. Herbert Lehman had been a hero of my mother's. Uh, she was a teenager during the 1930s when Lehman was governor of New York. She always had this feeling, as many Jews in New York State did, that if there was a problem, she could appeal to Governor Lehman and he would help in some way. When I was in graduate school at Columbia University in the 1970s, I worked for three years as an archivist at the Herbert Lehman Papers, which were separately housed at Columbia at that time. In 1980-81, I spent a year as an American Historical Association Congressional Fellow working for the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations and learning firsthand how Congress works. After teaching at a couple of other places. I was hired for a tenure-track position at Lehman College in 1986. And, you know, as I said earlier, it would continue there until my retirement last September. 2003 marked the 125th anniversary of Herbert Lehman's birth, and the college decided it wanted to put on a colloquium commemorating Lehman's birth. Lehman had originally been the Bronx campus of Hunter College, but it had been renamed and established as a separate entity within the SUNY University system in 1969, and it had been named in honor of Herbert Lehman in the hope that his ideas and ideals would inspire the students and the faculty and the administration as well. So 2003, the college wants to put on this ceremony commemorating Herbert Lehman, And I was asked to present a scholarly paper on Lehman. That would be one of the highlights of the celebration. So I began work on the paper. And one of the things I quickly realized is that Herbert Lehman had basically been forgotten. This is a man who spent four terms, 10 years as governor of New York State from 1933 through 1942. During World War II, he was the director general of the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, which provided relief, primarily food, to millions of people in Europe as they were liberated from the Nazis. Herbert Lehman had been a United States senator for seven years, from 1950 through 1956, and he'd led the fight to oust the bosses who had controlled the Democratic Party in New York City. But 
he'd really been forgotten. Nothing in a scholarly vein had been written about him since Alan Nevin's authorized biography in 1963. So I saw that there was a need for a book on Lehman. And also since Nevins had written in 1963, numerous scholarly archives had opened up. The John Kennedy Library, the Lyndon Johnson Library, the Harry Truman Library, all of which had material that was directly relevant to Lehman's career and would make it possible for a new book now to put Lehman's career in historical perspective. The trick was, how was I going to do this biography in such a way that it was going to be different from the book Nevins had written in 1963? Well, Nevins had done an excellent job of placing Lehman in the context of the German Jewish families around the beginning of the 20th century, that whole milieu from which Lehman had come. And there was a lot in there about Lehman's family. But I decided I could focus my book differently by emphasizing the connections Lehman had made in his political career with important figures like Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and also highlight Lehman's leadership in the fight against McCarthyism. Lehman's efforts in the Senate, where he often was at loggerheads with Lyndon Johnson, trying to secure civil rights legislation, trying to secure immigration reform. So gradually, as I began working on this paper for the conference in 2003, I felt this book grabbing me and felt that in many ways, much of my life up to that point had really been preparation for writing this new biography of Herbert Lehman. So that's how I came to write this book. I was thinking how a lot of what you've described comes through in the book. And one of the things I really appreciated about reading it was the sense that you give in it as to how important Lehman was. In that sense, it's unfortunate that we've forgotten him to the degree that he have. But it's fascinating to read about how you're describing from the 1930s onward how Democrats, not just in New York, but nationally felt that it was vital for their prospects to have Herbert Lehman on the ticket, that Herbert Lehman was this important vote getter, that he was this important force, that he was one of the few governors who was trying to implement the New Deal at a state level, and how he plays this important role in terms of refugee relations, and before he gets to the Senate, and how a lot of that has been, you know, lost in in, in so many ways because we've forgotten about Herbert Lehman and the role that he played in in the politics of his time. Yeah, Lehman had the misfortune to be overshadowed in much of his political career. I mean, in the 1930s, during the 10 years that he's governor of New York, Franklin Roosevelt is president of the United States. Fiorella LaGuardia is mayor of New York City. And they're much more colorful, much more quotable, much more wanting and getting the headlines and the attention. Lehman really just quietly went about his job implementing New Deal programs in New York and making sure that New Yorkers were able to survive the hardships caused by the Depression, but doing so in a quiet, dignified, competent way. Uh, One of 
somebody who was considering writing a biography of Lehman in the 50s asked his longtime secretary for any colorful anecdotes that, you know, show Lehman's great humanitarianism. And her reply was that you know, virtually everything Lehman has done has been in the name of humanitarianism to further humanitarian causes. But unfortunately, there just aren't very many colorful anecdotes about him. Uh, Hubert Humphrey, his Senate colleague for seven years, uh, when doing an oral history, also just lamented that there weren't a lot of colorful anecdotes about Lehman. What dominated with Lehman was his competence and his integrity and his devotion to principle rather than his actively seeking the limelight or the, the headlines like many of his contemporaries did. Lehman didn't really care who got the credit as long as things got done. That notion of his humanitarianism comes across very early in his life when you describe his voluntary activism in the Settlement House movement. I was wondering if you could perhaps start us off by talking a bit about Le uh, Lehman's early years and how he gets involved in uh, voluntary work and how that leads to a career in politics. Lehman took a trip through his school down to the Lower East Side. Uh, this would have probably been in the early, eight, early to mid-1890s. And he was shocked at the poverty he saw there. Uh, the 1890s were the era of large, huge numbers of Russian Jews in particular coming to New York, settling on the Lower East Side, being crammed into tenements that were divided and subdivided and lacked sanitation and sanitary facilities. And Lehman very early came under the influence of Lillian Wald, who had begun the Henry Street settlement in the mid-1890s. Lillian Wald was trained as a nurse, and as opposed to some of the other settlement houses, the Henry Street settlement began a program that would eventually evolve into the visiting nurse service. So they had nurses that would go into the tenements and work with the community, uh, provide skilled nursing care, as well as the traditional educational and social programs that the other settlement houses provided as well. In many ways, Lillian Wald was the main influence on Herbert Lehman in addition to his parents. Uh, his parents had always emphasized the need to serve one's fellow man. And Lillian Wald reiterated and reemphasized that. And so by the early 1900s, you see Lehman volunteering at Henry Street, leading a group of 13 to 15-year-old boys. And as one of the boys later recalled, Lehman was not, Lehman was free of the condescending attitude that so many of the do-gooders from wealthier families brought with them when they came down to work at Henry Street or the other settlement houses. Lehman wasn't like that. He was able to relate to these 13 to 15-year-old boys and engage them in activities, and many of them went on to very successful lives. Uh, Lehman helped pay for college education for some of them. A few of them named their children after Herbert Lehman. But Lillian Wald and that 
sense of social activism remained an important factor in Lehman's life, as did the knowledge that social activism and private charitable activities weren't enough. When Lillian Wald and the other social workers wanted the federal government to establish a children's bureau in the Department of Labor in the early 1900s, they realized that they needed to become politically active. They needed to write letters. They needed to visit with President Roosevelt or President Wilson in order to get that done. And Lehman volunteered to become involved in this political activity. So he realizes early on that Social activism is important, but political activism is also crucial to get things done, to help people cope with the hardships that are being caused by industrialization, urbanization, and the great tide of immigrants that's coming to this country. You make Lillian Wald's uh, influence in Lehman's life very clear in that respect. And yet it seems that he might have just had this career as this wealthy social activist exerting political influence had it not been for his connection with Al Smith. It seems that Al Smith was really that key figure who transitioned him into a uh, you know, public service and, uh, and elective office. That's exactly correct, Mark. Uh, it's in the early 1920s that Lehman becomes attracted to Al Smith as a political figure. Smith had been elected governor of New York in 1918. Governor's terms in those years were only for two years. Smith was defeated in 1920 in the Republican landslide that elected Harding to the White House and a Republican to the governorship in New York. But then Smith went on to win election in 1922, 24, and 26. Lehman believed in the same kind of political goals and objectives that Al Smith did. Uh, Smith had been connected to Belle Moskowitz and her husband, Henry Moskowitz, and the various social workers, even though he was a product of Tammany Hall, along with Robert Wagner. Wagner was the head of the New York State Senate. Smith was the head of the New York State Assembly at the time of the Triangle shirtwaist, fu- shirtwaist Fire. And they both took the lead working with social workers to enact labor legislation, fire regulations in New York to improve working conditions. And Smith carried out that liberal agenda as governor, and Lehman was very much attracted to it and began working on his behalf. Uh, Smith appointed Lehman to a couple of state boards, asked him to mediate a labor dispute in 1924. Lehman became an active backer financially, especially in Smith's attempt to win the Democratic presidential nomination in 1924. And in 1928, when Smith did win the presidential nomination of the Democrats, Lehman became the chair of the Democratic National Finance Committee, which raised huge sums on Smith's behalf. I think Lehman, as a Jew, was very sensitive to the issue of religious discrimination, both in society and especially in politics. 
And he believed that Smith's candidacy was important in showing that one's religion, Smith being a Catholic, Lehman being a Jew, one's religion didn't disqualify one from seeking public office, that a Catholic was just as eligible to become president of the United States as a Protestant or anybody else uh, who believed in any other religion. Lehman was aghast at some of the bigotry that was confronted by the Smith campaign in 1928 and believed it was important for America to reach its full potential uh, for that kind of bigotry, anti-Catholicism or anti-Semitism to be overcome. And Lehman was very disappointed, obviously, when Herbert Hoover defeated Al Smith for the presidency in 1928. But yes, you're right that it's Smith who really brings Lehman into the political arena. Lehman at this point is still working for Lehman Brothers, the investment banking firm that had been founded by his father and his uncle. And it's not until 1928, when he's 50 years old, that Lehman himself runs for public office for the first time. And that he runs in 1928 for lieutenant governor of New York on a ticket headed by Franklin Roosevelt, who's the candidate for governor. And both of them agree to run in large measure to try to help Al Smith carry New York State. In those days, it was thought to be very important to have ethnic balance on the ticket. So Smith, a Catholic running for president, Roosevelt, a Protestant running for governor, and Lehman, a Jew running for lieutenant governor, was seen as the perfectly balanced ticket. However, as I said a few moments ago, Smith was defeated by Hoover in the presidential race, while Roosevelt and Lehman each won by a very narrow margin defeating their Republican opponents. Uh, in those days, the governor and lieutenant governor were elected separately. Uh, it wasn't a combined ticket until the constitutional amendments of 1937, the state New York State Constitution. That 1928 election really was pivotal in a lot of respects because, as you've already mentioned, uh, it was you know Al Smith running as a Catholic is what you know people might be most familiar with. As you've, uh, it was also uh, Lehman won his first election that year. But it's also much more important in terms of Lehman's political journey because this is the point where he becomes much more connected and starts to work much more closely with Franklin Roosevelt. And as you describe in your book, that becomes a, an enormously important relationship really for both men. Yeah. The Democratic leaders had to persuade a reluctant Franklin Roosevelt to run for governor in 1928. Uh, Roosevelt and his closest advisors did not see 1928 as a very uh, favorable year for the Democrats. The economy was still very prosperous, and uh, Roosevelt was recovering, trying to recover from the polio with which he'd been stricken in 1921. He was spending a lot of his time in War Springs, Georgia. Uh, trying to recover some use of his legs, which he never really did regain. And one of the arguments that was made to Roosevelt was that we'll put Herbert Lehman on the ticket as 
lieutenant governor candidate, and he'll be able to handle a lot of the day-to-day duties of the governorship, freeing you up to spend time down in Warm Spring, Warm Springs as necessary. Lehman and Roosevelt had first met during World War I when Franklin Roosevelt served as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and Lehman served as a, for a short time as a procurement officer for the Navy. Uh, they had begun to work together on the Al Smith campaigns in the 1920s. Roosevelt had been the main nominating, had given the main nominating speech for Al Smith at the 1924 and 28 Democratic National Convention. So Lehman and Roosevelt had begun to form a relationship, which obviously blossomed once Roosevelt was elected governor and Lehman was elected lieutenant governor. As Lehman later recalled, he was really the first lieutenant governor to become part of the governor's cabinet, to become part of the governor's inner circle. In many ways, Roosevelt and Lehman were very different. Roosevelt, once he made a decision, that was it. He was confident in it. Lehman constantly second-guessed himself and worried and and, and kept wrestling with a problem uh, almost to a fault sometimes. But Roosevelt's mobility was limited by the polio. And, you know, we talk a lot about how Eleanor Roosevelt, during Franklin Roosevelt's White House years, became the president's eyes and ears. Well, Herbert Lehman performed a similar role when he was lieutenant governor. Herbert Lehman made a tour of the state's mental institutions, which were horribly overcrowded and in need of repair. Uh, He made sure Lehman did to take the press with him when he viewed these mental hospitals. And everyone was aghast at, at just how deplorable their terms were, their conditions were. And given the publicity that these visits generated, they were able, Lehman and Roosevelt, to get a $50 million bond issue passed to refurbish, rebuild, and construct new facilities across the state for the mentally ill. Uh, Lehman had to, do, had to deal with bank failures when Roosevelt was out of the state, and there were a few major banks that collapsed during the early years of the Depression. Lehman also had to deal with a prison riot at upstate Auburn Correctional Institution. Roosevelt trusted Lehman. He liked to say that, you know, Lehman brought a banker's sense and understanding of finances that could be used to eliminate waste in the state budget. Lehman was crucial in getting the state to create its temporary employment relief administration, uh, what would eventually be the model for Roosevelt's federal emergency relief administration. Uh, These programs often had the word emergency in them, connoting that they would hopefully be around only for a brief time to deal with the emergency. And then both when Roosevelt went to Washington as president and Lehman was elected governor. Lehman would appeal to Roosevelt at various times when the state needed help from Washington uh, to make sure that the roles of the 
PWA, the Public Works Administration, or the CWA, the Civil Works Administration, to make sure that people were not forced off of those programs before the WPA, the Works Progress Administration that was created in 1935, was ready and able to absorb them. Lehman got Roosevelt to send civilian Conservation Corps men to help with flood relief uh, upstate near Binghamton when there had been major flooding in 1935 and 36, I think it was. Uh, and then even more so when Lehman was heading up international relief efforts during the war, and he was stymied time and time again by the bureaucracy, first in the State Department and then throughout the federal government. He was able to appeal to Roosevelt for help, and Roosevelt was able to do what he could, although the civilian relief agencies that Lehman headed always took a backseat to the military needs for leaders, for equipment, for food, and especially for shipping needed to move grain and other supplies from the United States to the people in need in North Africa and in Europe. It was certainly Roosevelt who helped train Lehman during Lehman's four years as lieutenant governor. Roosevelt helped train him for the governorship. Roosevelt made sure, along with Al Smith, uh, let me in, in 1932, Roosevelt has been nominated for the presidency and the New York State Democratic Convention is meeting, I think it was in Rochester that year. Tammany Hall, the political machine of Manhattan, does not want to nominate Lehman for the governor. They know that Lehman is independent and will not do the bidding uh, will not be part of the patronage and uh, graft that Tammany Hall was famous for. So Tammany Hall and its leaders try to deny Lehman the nomination for the governorship. And it's Franklin Roosevelt and Al Smith, particularly Smith, who has a lot of influence with Tammany Hall, who demand that Tammany support Lehman. Smith threatens that if Tammany refuses to support Lehman, that he, Smith, will run for mayor of New York the following year, which would deprive Tammany completely of all the patronage you know, that flows out of City Hall. When Tammany asked Smith, well, what ticket, what party, what ticket are you going to run on? Smith says, I'll run on a Chinese laundry ticket if I have to, <laughs> but you're going to nominate my friend. Herbert Lehman, who is the most qualified to continue the legacy that Franklin Roosevelt and I have set as governor this last 10 years. And Roosevelt also has two speeches prepared when he comes to the convention, one lambasting Tammany Hall and one just being quiet on the subject, depending on whether Lehman is nominated. Lehman's nominated, so Roosevelt does not have to attack Tammany in his speech to the convention. So these two relationships with Smith and Roosevelt are crucial to Lehman getting the governor's nomination, the gubernatorial nomination in 1932. And certainly the relationship with Roosevelt be, remains important up through Roosevelt's death in 1945. What you've emphasized there is 
the debt, if you will, that Lehman owed Roosevelt in terms of his uh, course through New York politics. But you also make it very clear in your book that, if anything, Roosevelt owed an even larger debt to Lehman because it really seems that Lehman is the linchpin of his New York electoral strategy, both uh, in in uh, 1932 when he hopes to win the state and then throughout the 1930s to maintain uh, control of the governorship. I, I was fascinated, especially by as you describe how Lehman begins to think about running for the Senate and how he is constantly facing all this pressure, not just from the state Democrats, but Roosevelt himself, who are constantly imploring him, you know, her, you got to run for governor again. We, 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 can't, we can't win without you. The, the, the sense that he really becomes absolutely indispensable for ensuring that uh, New York State remains in the Democratic column. Yeah. And we see this Really, in 1936, especially, you know, we know now in hindsight that Roosevelt sailed to re-election, carrying 46 out of the 48 states in 1936, uh, carrying everything except Vermont and Maine. But at the time, Roosevelt's re-election was thought to be in doubt. Uh, it wasn't even clear if Roosevelt would be able to carry New York State, and so Roosevelt. Uh, Democratic National Committee Chair James Far Jim Farley and others believe that Herbert Lehman's presence at the head of the ticket in New York as the party's gubernatorial candidate was crucial to Roosevelt carrying the state and winning re-election. Lehman by this point was becoming physically worn out. His wife, Edith, who was his closest political advisor, really would have preferred that he give up the rigors of the governorship. But Roosevelt and Farley managed events in such a way that Lehman had little choice in the matter. At the Democratic National Convention in 1936, Lehman received a huge ovation with delegates cheering and marching throughout the hall that went on for a half hour. Now, this had all been prearranged by Farley, but it was meant to show Lehman how much support he had among the people, not just in New York, but nationally. Roosevelt kept working on him. They rode together in a train back to Hyde Park after the convention. And Lehman was prevailed upon to run for a third term in 1936. He won easily, as did FDR. Jumping ahead to 1938, Robert Wagner was running for re-election as one New York senator. And then the other New York Senate seat opened up when Royal Copeland, who had been the other senator, passed away. And Lehman really wanted to move from the day-to-day -day grind of being governor to the U.S. Senate, where he would still be involved in all the causes that were dear to his heart, but he thought that the workload on a day-to-day -day basis would be a little bit less. He announces publicly, Lehman does, his candidacy for the Democratic nomination for the Senate. The problem, though, for the Democrats was that the Republicans in 1938 nominated Tom Dewey, Thomas Dewey, as their candidate for the governorship. Dewey at this point was the young 
racket-busting district attorney of New York City who was putting various organized crime and Tammany Hall figures in jail. The only Democrat who could have defeated Dewey that year was Herbert Lehman, because it was Lehman who had originally appointed Dewey as a special prosecutor in 1936 to investigate the corruption and the graft in New York City. So while virtually any other Democrat could have been charged with being soft on crime, with being in cahoots with Tammany, being in cahoots with organized crime, Dewey and the Republicans would not be able to make that charge stick against Lehman because it was Lehman who had originally appointed Dewey to a position where he could go after organized crime figures. Roosevelt and Farley just hammer away at Lehman, emphasizing that if Dewey and the Republicans win the governorship in 1938, they will undo all of the social programs, the wages and hour legislation, the social security legislation, the aid to farmers, the uh, bills to provide low-cost electricity across the state through public utilities. All of that will be undone if the Republicans win the State House. And they finally, Farley and Roosevelt, prevail upon Lehman to run one more time. Now, this time in 1938, the state constitution's been amended, and it's a four-year term. Lehman wins a few concessions, getting his former legal counsel to be accepted as his running mate for lieutenant governor in the hope that Charles Paletti was his name, that Paletti will be able to take some of the burden off Lehman the same way Lehman had taken some of the burden off Franklin Roosevelt. Lehman is prevailed upon to run, and he defeats Dewey narrowly in the 1938 election. And there's no question but that any other Democrat would have been defeated. 1938 nationally was a good year for Republicans. Uh, They picked up a number of seats in the U.S. Senate, in the House of Representatives. And if I recall correctly, Lehman was the only Democratic governor north of the Mason-Dixon line and east of the Mississippi River to win re-election that year. And it shows his tremendous popularity. Now, Lehman had a built-in advantage and a built-in disadvantage with New York voters. Obviously, he had a strong connection to Jewish voters in New York State primarily located in New York City. So, I mean, that gave him a huge base of support to build from. On the other hand, he was looked at suspiciously by Catholic voters, especially uh, many of whom felt that Lehman was anti-Catholic. Despite his strong support for Al Smith, uh, Lehman was never a supporter of sending money to parochial schools. uh, And so, Uh, Lehman also supported the child labor, the the U.S. constitutional amendment to prohibit child labor, which the Catholic Church opposed, uh, arguing that it would interfere with the uh, 
recruitment of altar boys and, you know, who you know, performed essential duties within the church. So while Lehman was tremendously popular with Jewish voters in New York State, many Catholic voters and many Catholic leaders had an antipathy toward Lehman, uh, partly because of his religion and partly because of his stance on some issues that were important to the Catholic Church. Lehman's re-election in 1938 means that he is possibly the most prominent Jewish elected official in the country. As you start to see you know, this growing threat of war in Europe, dealing with the anti-Semitic uh, you know, Nazi regime. And as you describe, you know, during that final term as governor, Lehman is really uh, at, at the forefront of, of pushing for something to be done about the Jewish refugees. And it seems that that really is key to that transition that you describe in your book from his, uh, his you know, time as governor at the state level and that role that he plays at the federal level in the early to mid-1940s of refugee relief. Yeah, I mean, Lehman was concerned right from the moment that Hitler took power in Germany. And uh, he and his brother Irving Lehman, who's the who's a judge on the New York State Court of Appeals, uh, get in touch with Roosevelt right away to protest some of the anti-Jewish demonstrations that are going on in Nazi Germany in 1933. In the mid-30s, 1935 and 1936, Lehman tries to intercede with Roosevelt to get the State Department to loosen its interpretation of the immigration laws so that German Jews who are trying to flee from Germany can be admitted to the United States in more significant numbers. Uh, Roosevelt refers Lehman's letters on this issue to the State Department, which you know, basically prepares a very bureaucratic response that Roosevelt sends. Lehman meets with Roosevelt a couple of times to discuss the issue. And as scholars who have looked at the issue in more detail have noted, although there's no official change in U.S. policy, by the end of 1936 into 1937, there is some loosening in the way the immigration restrictions are being interpreted and applied. By 1938, 1939, Lehman certainly accepts that the United States is not going to open its doors to any significant extent for refugees fleeing Nazi Germany. So he focuses on Palestine which is under a British mandate as the obvious place for Jews trying to flee Nazi persecution. But the British at this point are adopting a policy that's going to restrict the number of Jews who they will allow into Palestine. Lehman again tries to appeal to Roosevelt, but Roosevelt says there's really very little we can do. This is under British jurisdiction. We have made our feelings known, but there's only so much we can do. Once the war breaks out in 1939, Lehman believes it's inevitable that the United States will get involved. And so he's a strong supporter of repealing the Neutrality Acts, Lend-Lease, aid to Britain, such as the Destroyers for Bases Agreement, uh, there's even an event organized at the governor's mansion called Barkers for Britain, at which the Lehman's dogs and FDR's fa Fala 
and other canines are encouraged to gather and help raise money that will go to support Great Britain's efforts at that point. Lehman wants to get more involved in the war effort. Roosevelt spends some number of months looking for just the right spot. And in late 1942, Roosevelt finds what he thinks is just the perfect position. Within the State Department, Roosevelt creates what's called the Office of Foreign Refugee and Rehabilitation Operations, OFRO, and he appoints Lehman to be the head of this new office within the State Department. One of the problems, well, Roosevelt took special glee in appointing Lehman to this position because he thought it would be especially ironic that it would be a Jew, in this case Herbert Lehman, supplying the relief and rehabilitation that Europe needs after people and nations are liberated from Nazi rule. In creating this post, or creating this whole office, Roosevelt never consulted with Secretary of State Cordell Hall. The first thing Hall learned about it was when Lehman was in the White House office with the president and Roosevelt called Hall to inform him of <laughs> Lehman's appointment. So Lehman did not get off to a good start in his relationship with other bureaus and agencies within the State Department. Hall was a well-established bureaucratic infighter. He managed to serve as Secretary of State for 12 years, longer than anybody else in American history. And he was an expert at winning the turf battles within the Roosevelt administration. One Roosevelt advisor is quoted, is quoted as saying that Roosevelt had the bad habit sometimes of appointing one person to do the job of four men and other times appointing four men to do the job of one. <laughs> and so the Roosevelt administration in many ways was a bureaucratic morass. And that's where Lehman found himself as the head of OFRO. There were executive orders. The Bureau of the Budget tried to clarify responsibilities. Uh, there was a Bureau of Economic Warfare. There was a Food Administration, all of which were working at cross currents not to mention various people within the State Department undermining Lehman. Finally, the plan all along had been for an international agency to take over the duties of OFRA. And in November of 1943, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration was created. This was really the first formal United Nations organization and note that it precedes by almost two years the formation of the United Nations itself. So UNRWA is going to be very important in showing whether the allied nations can work together during the war and after the war to feed the starving people, provide the relief and rehabilitation that's going to be needed to rebuild. It had always been envisioned that Lehman would be the head of the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration when it was created, and that was kind of how he got out of the bureaucratic morass within the Roosevelt administration. However, even though he's now the head of an international agency, 
He needs money. He needs supplies. He needs shipping. And where is he going to get that? From the United States government, from the Food Administration, from the Foreign Economic Assistance Agency, from the Lend-Lease Administrator. So even though Lehman is now the head of an international agency, he still has to contend with all of these competing agencies within the Roosevelt administration, within the United States government. And the military logically took top priority. UNRWA was always secondary when it came to supplies, when it came to shipping, when it came to food. So UNRWA was never really completely able to fulfill its mission, even though the food aid it sent saved millions of lives in Europe and else and in Asia during and after the war. But it was difficult. Lehman found his years at UNRWA, and he remained as the head of UNRWA till February of 1946, as both the most satisfying and some of the most frustrating years of his life. As you mentioned, for all of those problems that he faced in you know in, in the in the struggle for priorities, he had an advantage in that he had that he had Roosevelt's ear, and as you describe, you know his situation changes with Roosevelt's death. You have the introduction of Harry Truman as president, and, and, and unlike Roosevelt, you know, Truman is a person with whom. Uh, Lehman has no relationship whatsoever. And one of the things I find fascinating is is not just how that complicates Lehman's uh, uh, you know, job, and, and that's underscoring your you know your approach in the book of talking about his relationship with these personalities, but how also Lehman then goes on to build a relationship with Truman, one at, that extends past his time as uh, UNRWA director, and then goes into when he. Uh, campaigns for Truman in 48, and then uh, enters the Senate in 1949. Yeah, Lehman's relationship with Truman really goes through three periods. From the time that Truman succeeds to the presidency in April of 1945, through the end of that year, Lehman and Truman actually work closely together to secure the necessary funding for UNRWA, most of which is going to come from the United States. The Truman administration supports and pushes through Congress the necessary authorization and appropriations bills. Uh, General Eisenhower comes and testifies before Congress Thanksgiving weekend. He gets out of a sickbed in 1945 to show how important continued funding for UNRWA is, that the military doesn't want to take on the responsibility of caring for civilians and birthing babies and things of that sort. The problem with Truman and Lehman comes in 1946 when the world is going through a terrible food crisis. The people in Europe in the displaced persons camps and elsewhere under UNRWA's care are having to get by on maybe a thousand calories a day. Truman has lifted most of the food restrictions and rationing here in the United States. And Lehman believes it's necessary to reimpose rationing to free up the grain and the fat and the meat that's necessary to prevent huge numbers of people elsewhere in the world from starving to death. Truman instead appoints Herbert Hoover to head a study group. And Hoover and the study group 
recommend voluntary measures instead. Lehman believes that these voluntary measures are not going to be nearly enough. And he cites health concerns, but in February 1946, he resigns as the head of UNRWA. And it's mainly out of this disagreement with Truman. Truman, while publicly praising Lehman, privately expresses his that he's glad to see Lehman go, that Lehman, according to Truman, has just been sitting around on his ass rather than you know, taking the necessary measures, ignoring the fact that Truman and Secretary of Agriculture Clinton Anderson are the ones who have really screwed up the, the food policies and programs. But after that brief period where they were at loggerheads, Lehman and Truman do reconcile Lehman strongly supports Truman in 1948. Lehman is influential in persuading Truman to recognize the state of Israel in May of 1948. Lehman supports the Marshall Plan, NATO, the various initiatives that Truman has undertaken. Uh, Lehman praises Truman's veto of the Taft-Hartley Act. And basically, they realize that They've got a lot more in common than they do issues that divide them. So they, by 1948, 49, and certainly throughout Lehman's Senate years, they're very much on the same page, supporting civil rights and you know, immigration reform. Lehman really does emerge as a champion of those issues during his time in the Senate. And yet, as you describe in your book, he is oftentimes going up against some very formidable individuals. He wins election to the Senate in 1949, and he almost immediately does something that is, you know, a, a, you could argue is brave, reckless, and the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, in that he takes on Joseph McCarthy. He comes into the Senate, and Joseph McCarthy gives his speech a month later, and pretty soon you have you know, Lehman as a senator taking a stand against Joseph McCarthy at a time when it was politically potentially very disastrous to do so. Yeah. Lehman runs for the Senate in 1946, and he's defeated in the Republican landslide of that year, defeated by an upstate New York political leader named Irving Ives. Uh, Lehman runs again in 1949 against John Foster Dulles. Dulles had been appointed to the seat previously held by Robert Wagner. Wagner had retired because of ill health. And the Lehman-Dulles campaign becomes a nasty one. Lehman runs strongly defending what Dulles and the Republicans are denouncing as, quote, the welfare state. Lehman says if welfare means providing for the welfare of the people, then I'm in favor of it. So Lehman doesn't run from the issue, and if anything, he embraces it, and he defeats Dulles by a couple of hundred thousand votes. Lehman is, takes the oath of office in the Senate early January 1950, and it's about a month later that Joe McCarthy makes the famous speech in Wheeling, West Virginia charging that there are 205 known communists working in the State Department. Lehman, at that point, is serving just a one-year term in the Senate, the last year remaining on what had originally been Wagner's term. So Lehman will be facing the voters again in November of 1950. Yet when McCarthy starts making his out, 
outrageous accusations. Lehman is one of the first senators to take him on directly, to question him, to demand that McCarthy produce proof rather than just accusations. Lehman in 1950 is the only senator up for re-election who votes against the Internal Security Act, which will require members of so-called communist front organizations to register with the Justice Department. Lehman believes that this law, this bill, is an infringement of Americans' rights under the First Amendment to the Constitution. And as he says on the floor of the Senate, it would be easier for me politically, but I will not compromise my conscience. I will vote against this putrid piece of legislation, even if it costs me my seat in the Senate. It doesn't. Lehman is reelected easily in 1950, and he will spend the next three years, next four years, up through 1954, fighting against McCarthy and McCarthyism. And as Lehman emphasizes, it's not just Joe McCarthy, the individual. It's the witch hunts. It's the guilty until proven innocent mentality that's attacking the press, attacking the schools, the colleges, the entertainment industry that McCarthy is part of. But McCarthy is just part of it. It's McCarthyism that's the real problem. Lehman goes into Wisconsin and delivers a speech attacking McCarthyism. He mails copies of the speech all across the country. He is persuaded by Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic leaders in 1954 when the censure of McCarthy is being acted upon to let the more moderate Democrats take the lead. But Lehman had played an essential role for the previous five years in exposing McCarthy and McCarthyism and helping bring about his downfall at a time when Lyndon Johnson and party leaders and President Eisenhower had been afraid to challenge McCarthy directly. Lehman had been one of the first and one of the few to do so. That was an example of one of the public battles that Lehman fought during his time in the Senate. But as you detail, and I, I think this gets to you know, the advantage that you had in terms of all the archival materials that have become available s- since the 1960s, it was really those insider battles that he had against James Eastland and Lyndon Johnson that really frustrated so much of what he sought to do as a senator. Yeah, uh Pat McCarran, a reactionary Democrat from Nevada, was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee when Lehman came to the Senate. And the Judiciary Committee had jurisdiction over immigration bills and civil rights matters, the two issues most close to Lehman's heart. And anything that McCarran and his committee produced tended to be more restrictive rather than loosening the immigration restrictions. Uh, The immigration laws still included quotas based on the 1920 census, which gave the largest number of potential immigrants to countries like England and France and Norway. 
and the smallest numbers to countries in southern Europe like Italy and Greece. And it also prohibited the transfer of quotas from one country to another. So if, let's say, England's quota was 25,000 potential immigrants, but only 5,000 immigrants came, those other 20,000 slots went unused. They couldn't be transferred to Italy or to, to Greece or anyplace else. Lehman thought this was tremendously unfair, kept trying to introduce measures to, to change the whole system, but McCarran would basically bottle them up in committee. When McCarran's more reactionary immigration bills to reduce the quotas even more would come to the floor, when Lehman would get up to speak in opposition, McCarran and his supporters would just walk out. And this was so disheartening to Lehman, who saw the Senate as a place where great debates could take place, as they had between Webster and Calhoun back in the 1830s and 1840s, where reasonable men could differ, but through the power of persuasion, minds and votes could be changed. Well, obviously that couldn't happen if the other side walked out rather than listening to anything you had to say. Lehman was also terribly frustrated by Lyndon Johnson, who would become the Democratic Senate leader in 1953 and the Senate majority leader when the Democrats retook the majority, took control of the Senate in 1955. Johnson never gave Lehman any of the significant committee assignments that he wanted. Uh, Lehman was on the Labor Committee, but you know, so were numerous other Democratic liberals. That's where they were all stacked. Uh, he was on the Banking and Commerce Committee, which was important, but he really wanted to be on the Foreign Affairs Committee, utilizing the knowledge he had gained as the head of UNRWA, or on the Judiciary Committee, which, as I said, had jurisdiction over immigration matters and, and civil rights. Uh, McCarran died in 53 or 54, he was succeeded by Harley Kilgore as chair of the Judiciary Committee, but Kilgore passed away in 1956. And despite Herbert Lehman and Wayne Morse warning that this was an instance where the Democrats should not follow the seniority rule, seniority rule, all of their colleagues in the Democratic caucus followed the seniority rule. And that meant that James Eastland, a rabid, racist reactionary from Mississippi, now became the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And he was just as bad, if not worse, than McCarran in terms of bottling everything up. And he became a real obstacle to any progress on civil rights or immigration reform. Lyndon Johnson and Lehman had a complicated relationship. Uh, Johnson slighted Lehman in numerous ways because Lehman was not susceptible to the treatment, as it was known, where Johnson would come up. Johnson was a big, physically imposing man, and he would put his arm around a colleague and gather him close. And Johnson knew what other senators wanted and needed. You want a dam in your state? Well, I need your vote on this other issue. And Johnson was a master at that kind of manipulation. Uh, Robert Caro entitles his book on Johnson's Senate years, Master of the Senate. But Lehman was one of those 
people who Johnson considered a flame-throwing liberal. Lehman was not willing to compromise. Lehman would stake out the liberal position and stick with it. And Johnson just couldn't abide that. Johnson needed people who were willing to compromise. Lehman believed that in compromising, you were basically abandoning your principles. And he believed that while it might be necessary eventually to compromise, you had to insist on the liberal position for as long as possible. Johnson and Lehman both used the whole loaf of bread analogy. In Lehman's opinion, by demanding the whole loaf of bread, you were going to get a fair portion, whereas Lyndon Johnson was more willing to settle for a slice at a time. For example, on immigration, Johnson thought the way to bring about change was to nibble at reform, enact small measures. Uh, in 1957, Johnson gets the Senate to pass a very moderate civil rights bill that really accomplishes very little, but it helps burnish Johnson's credentials with the liberals, and it sets a precedent that can be built upon in the future. Lehman considered the bill next to worthless because it accomplished so little. So there's very differing philosophies there. But the one thing that Johnson always remembered was that in 1955, Johnson was stricken with a very serious heart attack. And it was touch and go for a while whether he would survive. Herbert Lehman rose on the floor of the Senate and proposed that all senators join in a moment of silent prayer for Johnson's recovery. This was the first time that had ever been done on the floor of the Senate. And Johnson always remembered it. Whenever he you know, sent birthday congratulations or anything like that, when he, uh, con when he uh, communicated with Mrs. Lehman after the senator's death in 1963, Johnson constantly referred back to this moment when Lehman had asked for a moment of silent prayer for Johnson's recovery on the Senate floor, despite any political differences that the two men had. And that really, I, I think, gets to the core of Herbert Lehman and the kind of person he was. And yet I, I can't help but think that Lehman had a sort of revenge, even though he didn't intend it that way, in his uh, role in terms of promoting John Kennedy. Because uh, you, you read volume four of Caro's biography, and you know, he makes it clear how frustrating Lyndon Johnson found it that, that Kennedy comes from nowhere to become the, Republic, the Democratic presidential nominee in 1960, and how you know, frustrated Johnson was as, as Kennedy's vice president. And, and you explain how Lehman and Kennedy had a, a fairly good relationship and one that Kennedy benef benefited from enormously when he ran for president uh, that, in 1960. Yeah, but Lehman's support for Kennedy doesn't come until after the Democratic convention. Lehman, up until the time of the convention, is supporting Adlai Stevenson to be the Democratic nominee for a third time. He is somewhat dismissive of Kennedy as being too young and inexperienced to lead the country at a time of international crisis 
Uh, the U-2 plane had been shot down. The summit conference between Eisenhower and Khrushchev had been canceled. So Cold War tensions were bubbling over in 1960. Lehman was supporting a ticket of Stevenson and Kennedy with Kennedy for the vice presidential slot. Once Kennedy wins the nomination, then Lehman supports him enthusiastically. Uh, Lehman, Eleanor Roosevelt, and other liberals never forgot that when the Senate vote to censure Joe McCarthy happened in 1954, Kennedy was in the hospital in New York, but never made it clear, never sent instructions to his staff that he be paired going on the record in favor of the censure resolution. Instead, Kennedy was just absent. And a year later, when Kennedy uh, comes out with his book, Profiles in Courage, you know, the quip by Eleanor Roosevelt and others that Lehman agreed with was that Kennedy needed to show a little bit less profile and a little bit more courage. <laughs> Lehman did enthusiastically support the Kennedy-Johnson ticket because to him, you know, the worst possible outcome in 1960 would be for Richard Nixon to be elected. You know, Nixon was a strong supporter of the Internal Security Act, of the McCarran-Walter Immigration Act of 1952, uh, some of the major pieces of legislation that Lehman abhorred and had spent his years in the Senate trying to modify or repeal. And Kennedy certainly had taken up the cudgels on behalf of immigration reform. And while Lehman certainly was not enthusiastic about the choice of Johnson as Kennedy's running mate, he did acknowledge that it might help Kennedy carry Texas and various states in the South. It's ironic. Oh, sorry. I was going to say it's, it's ironic too, considering, the, and I'm thinking about how you end the book because when Lehman dies, I mean, it, this this person who is his, you know, bet noir in, in, in so many ways in the Senate is on the cusp of actually achieving so much of what Lehman spent the his his years in 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 the Senate, really, in, in throughout much of his political career, campaigning for. And I, I thought that was such a, a a fascinating point at which for 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 Lehman to to uh, you know. To, to absent himself from what's happening in politics. Tra tragic yeah, in, in many ways, too. Yeah, that's actually the point I, I was going to make. I mean, Lehman, when he looked back on his Senate years, there were, there's no major piece of legislation that bears his name. He did in 1956 win Senate approval for a flood insurance bill that he shepherded through the committee process and everything. The House passed it as well but no money was ever appropriated for it. Lehman saw his role in the Senate as keeping important issues like civil rights and immigration reform alive, making sure that the American people didn't forget the need for change, the need for the liberal position meaning federal intervention on civil rights, meaning immigration reform lifting those hated quotas. Lehman believed even if he hadn't brought about the changes he had sought, he had performed an essential duty in keeping those issues alive. And the great irony, of course, is that in the summer of 1964, Lyndon Johnson signs into law the Civil Rights Act 
which includes many of the provisions that Lehman had fought for a decade earlier. 1965, Johnson signs into law the Voting Rights Act that includes many of the provisions Lehman had fought for. In 1965, Johnson signs into law a new Immigration and Naturalization Act that does away with the quota system that Lehman had fought so bitterly and enacts reforms giving preference to family family reunification and other such ideas that Lehman had fought for. All of this is part of Johnson's great society, along with aid to education, Medicare, Medicaid. So many of the ideas and programs that Lehman had fought for unsuccessfully in the 50s are now enacted in 64 and 65 as part of Lyndon Johnson's great society. And what makes this all so ironic is that it had been none other than Lyndon Johnson who had fought so hard to keep those measures from being enacted in the 1950s when he was the Democratic leader in the Senate. But, you know, freed from the restraints of needing to win re-election in Texas and now having the national stage, Johnson was able to, one could argue, you know, show his true colors and, you know, come back to where he had started as a supporter of FDR and the New Deal and expand the role of the federal government in all these areas to provide the necessary help and assistance to people that had begun in the New Deal, but then had stalled and was now expanded under Johnson's presidency. Many of the same ideas and ideals that Lehman had been pushing his entire life. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, I retired from teaching this past September, thank goodness, so I didn't have to you know, convert my courses to online at the last <laughs> minute or anything. Uh, even though the book is a lengthy one, it's about 600 pages, as you know, it's 600 pages of text and then another 300 pages of notes and bibliography. There are a number of things that I was not able to include in the book. The book is primarily a political biography. So I've been working on a few smaller pieces on Lehman and Judaism, uh, Lehman's how his Judaism really influenced Lehman's public positions and his philanthropy. So I'm working on other aspects of Lehman's life that I wasn't able to fit in to this 600-page biography. Well, uh, I definitely look forward to reading those when you complete them. Uh, until then, Dwayne, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. It's been my pleasure, and thank you, Mark. Mark.